This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Dean Slider, author of The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, published this year by New World Library. Some of us were lucky enough to have one passionate, funny, inspiring English teacher who helped us fall in love with books. Add a lifetime of teaching Dharma, authentic traditional approaches to meditation and awakening, and you get award-winning author Dean Slider. With droll humor and irreverent wisdom, he unpacks the Dharma of more than 20 major writers, from William Blake to Dr. Seuss, inspiring readers to deepen their own spiritual life and see literature in a fresh, new way, as a path of awakening. Dean Slider has led meditation workshops and retreats throughout the U.S. since 1970 at venues ranging from Ivy League colleges to maximum security prisons. For 33 years, he taught English and literature of enlightenment at the Pingree School. He lives in Santa Monica, California, where he sings with the Threshold Choir, plays old songs on the ukulele, and happily zips about on his Vespa. Dean Slider, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Hi, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and I will begin with our, uh, the question that we have uh, come to habitually ask first-time guests on the podcast, which is to um, invite you to reflect back on youth and childhood. Mm. And in that uh, reflection, um, tell us about any particular moments, instances, a sense of direction, that may have arisen that would tie in with your career um, as you describe in your book, The Dharma Bums, Guide to Western Literature, and your work in general um, in spiritual practice, in teaching uh, the Dharma of literature, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I... I in my childhood, there, well, first of all, I was the kind of kid, as I'm guessing both of you were, uh, who keeps asking a lot of annoying questions. Uh, <laughs> you know, where, where did everything come from? Why is there a bunch of something instead of nothing? Uh, and then, you know, the teacher said, depending on who you were asking, they said, well, it all came from God, or they said it all came from the Big Bang. And, and then we said, yeah, but where did God or where did the Big Bang come from? And then the teacher or the parent said, nope, time for juice boxes. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we just had some sense there. There's a, something more. There's a bigger picture. There's something going on here, some deeper mystery that needs to be plumbed. Uh, also, I did have a number of kind of experiences uh, as a kid. One of them I describe in the introduction to the book. Uh, I was 11 or 12 years old. It was 1961. 
we were going to go to a drive-in movie that night. So, you know, this is a period piece. And uh, my mom sent me out to the garage to clear out all the toys and comic books from the that my brothers and I had left in the backseat of the Nash Rambler station wagon, this being a period piece. And um, my mind already by the age of 11, 12 was in the habit of just kind of churning with a lot of anxiety, a lot of just, you know, uh, anxious blabber going on. And I was so used to being immersed in it that I didn't realize I was immersed in it. That, that was just the usual landscape of my consciousness. And as the, all this blah, 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 is going on in my head and I'm picking up the comic books, the next thing I pick up is a mad magazine. And on the cover of the magazine, as usual, is Mad's idiot mascot, Alfred E. Newman, with his big gap-tooth grin and his motto, What Me Worry? And those words, what me worry, functioned for me in that moment as what in Hindu philosophy is called a mahavakya, the great utterance. The traditional great utterances are like, that thou art, or, you know, tatwamasi, something like that. But in my case, it was this funky all-American mahavakya, what me worry. And I realized that this anxiety, this churning that was going on in my mind was a thing. And that thing was worry, and I was doing it. It wasn't being done to me. It was my foot on the gas pedal, keeping that engine revved up. And in that moment, I realized, oh, that means I can take my foot off the engine, right? You'll recognize that as the second noble truth and the third noble truth, <laughs> right? This, yeah. oh, this thing, this, uh, this, is a, this is discomfort, this is suffering, this is dukkha, and I'm the source of it, thank God, because that means I can, I can be the cessation of it. And I did that and just went into this full-blown blissful samadhi experience and just drifted blissfully in samadhi all that night, all through this uh, dumb uh, uh, movie that we went to and uh, all till as I fell asleep that night. So that was the most dramatic that got my attention, but other things were happening. Also, I, I had this, this experience on and off throughout my childhood and my adolescence the only way I can describe it is that it felt as if I had no face. Mm-hmm. It felt as if I'd been left, as if everyone else had a seam down the middle and they were closed here, and I'd been somehow left open like this. Mm. Right? And, and, and I, I can recognize it now as a sense of not being you know, an ego stuffed into a bag of of skin as being, right, opened up. And it used to surprise me, why does everyone treat me as if I'm like them? Why do they just talk to me normally as if I'm one of these people with a face? Don't they see that something else is going on here? Of course, if my realization had been really profound, I would have realized that none of them have faces either. But, you know, that's in the advanced course. (laughs) <laughs> Got it. Thank you. So um, one of the features of, of uh, the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature is is precisely that you bring in anecdotes from your from your life um, mm. to illustrate the, the topics you're discussing. Yeah. And I'm wondering if I mean, before we get into the book, you can just sort of I mean, I could 
I could read read or, or abstract a biography from all those anecdotes, but right. I'm wondering if you would mind giving our listeners just a sort of brief summary of how you came to write this book. Sure. sure. Um, so uh, I was in love with words from the the very beginning, you know, just almost as soon as I could talk, I was just, you know, relishing puns and paradoxes and tongue twisters and, and so forth. Um, and, um, you know, was always really good with writing and uh, reading in, 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 remember reading class when they had the three groups and there was always, they always, it was like the blue group and the yellow group and the red group. Yes. And we were not supposed to guess that this was, you know, the smart group and the less smart group. Um, and when I was in the first grade, they put me in the smart group and then I was going too fast for everyone else. So they made me go across the hall to go with the second graders. And soon I was at the top of their smart class. Finally, the teacher just took me into the cloakroom for my own <laughs> special reading tutorials. Uh, so I was always really good with verbal stuff. And it's a good thing because I suck at everything else. I mean, I'm completely, I mean, my wife has to pack my suitcase. I'm completely <laughs> helpless. Um, so, uh, and then I fell in love with my 10th grade English teacher, a man that I, I profile in the introduction to the book. His name was John Frisius. And he was, as I say, just a genuine wild man, passionately in love with language, with Keats and Shakespeare. And, and he would read poetry and then say, okay, let's take our shoes off and run through it and go back and unpack it line by line. And, and, and he just, you know, he had the best writers in the history of the world writing his material. We had the stage and I went, wow, I want to do that. So I, I knew that eventually I would be an English teacher. Uh, but meanwhile, um, there was the, the, the Dharma, and in particular, growing up in uh, suburban L.A. I was in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, it was the mid-60s. Actually, my first year of college was San Francisco State. Uh, I was there 66 to 67. So that means June of 67, the summer of love. I'm in San Francisco. There's Swami Bhaktivedanta and, and Suzuki Roshi and Sufi Sam and Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, like the whole spiritual mafia had invaded the San Francisco Bay Area. And so that was the end of college for me for, for a, a few years. I just became a full-time Dharma bum, um, eventually dropped back into school. Um, I, I connected with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I became a teacher of transcendental meditation because after all the tasting of, of these various flavors and the spiritual smorgasbord that I so fortunately had access to, um, something inside me said, yeah, but I need this in a form that I can bring back to the suburbs. Hmm. You know, that I can bring home to mom and dad, that I can can teach to to anyone who's not going to adopt a, a hippie lifestyle or a counterculture, you know, whatever. So and also Marishi taught effortlessness. And that was the key. That was the genius of transcendental meditation. There was other stuff in TM that 
you know, eventuated that, you know, was not so genius. Um, so eventually I had to, including charging way too much money. So eventually I had to leave there, but I got effortlessness from him. And then later got involved with uh, various Buddhist teachings, Zogchen in particular, uh, who they were, Oh, look, Margaret, she does not have a monopoly on, on effortlessness, on, on naturalness of practice. Um, I wound up teaching English at a very fine prep school in New Jersey, the Pingree School, uh, where at first I was highly suspect. There were a few people on the on the the administrators trying hard to get me kicked out because I was clearly this dangerous hippie subversive. <laughs> uh, but pretty soon they figured out that I was a pretty good teacher, and um, I wound up starting meditation programs there. I taught this elective course for juniors and seniors called Literature of Enlightenment, which was just a teacher for me. You know, it was just a dream to 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 teach these smart kids, smart 16, 17, 18-year-olds, and to be reading, um, you know, Salinger and Plato and the Gospel of Thomas and and haiku and you know just all that great stuff with them um it was it was just just wonderful um and i did that until uh and raised a couple of kids and um uh some years after my first wife passed who was also i met her on a on a meditation retreat and a few years after she passed I met another charming woman on a meditation retreat uh, and we wound up being married. And at that point I, I retired from uh, the classroom and moved out here to Santa Monica. So I continue to teach meditation these days. It's all on zoom, like most things and write books and play my ukulele and ride my Vespa and have fun. Got it. Well, uh, thank you. I, 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 I guess the, the class, the, the, the literature of enlightenment, uh, must have been sort of a seminal for the creation of this book. Uh, it was, but you know what? All my teaching was because I also taught. Uh, in some ways, my other classes were more so. Uh, when you teach American literature every year, and you, you have to teach Huckleberry Finn, that may be different now. I'm I'm told yeah. Finn is has has become persona non grata in the in the the canon, which. Um, well, that's a whole other argument. Uh, but I was teaching Huckleberry Finn every year and getting deeper and deeper into it. You know, mm-hmm. if you keep coming back to it and if you're not just phoning it in, you're getting you're seeing more deeply into the text. And meanwhile, you're doing your own practice and hopefully you're deepening your own cognition of of the Dharma and you start connecting those dots. Uh, I taught I had the good fortune of teaching. Beth for about 30 years in a row to my, my 10th grade English class. So I started seeing some stuff in, in Macbeth. I said, wow, this has rich, rich Dharma implications. And eventually, you know, I wrote an earlier book. I wrote a book in 2005 called Cinema Nirvana, Enlightenment Lessons from the Movies. Um, and because I always loved movies and I actually um, did some moonlighting as a film critic. And in that book, I made it a point to avoid any film that you would ever think of as having Dharma content or spiritual content. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, everyone said, oh, you have to write about the matrix. No, no, if you're seeing it, it's that's too easy. So I wrote about um, invasion of the body snatchers and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the Godfather, the graduate. Last chapter had to be Casablanca. Um, so I particularly so in this book, um, uh, I do have the usual suspects uh, when we think of spirituality in in literature. So I have William Blake, I have Emily Dickinson, I have Walt Whitman. You can't not write about them. I do feel that a lot of people who write about them have not had the, you know, the good fortune of having, you know, 50 some years of Dharma practice under their belt. So I do feel I'm seeing into some of their texts in ways that maybe hasn't been brought out before. But then also, I have a really good time writing about Macbeth, Huck Finn, um, Flatland, uh, uh, the the, uh, um, Virginia Woolf, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and so forth. Yeah, and I I think that one of the pleasures in the book is that there's a there's some surprising entrance, like. like Hemingway, who wouldn't yes. be would would not be someone I would go to for uh, 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 Dharma lessons necessarily, and yet you extract something, yeah. particularly because uh, we have a friend who's uh, very into haiku in terms of like writing, uh, theorizing about it, talking about it, and and so mm-hmm. I, that that chapter really touched me a lot because you were talking about how he used language in a very precise way to get a very precise effect and. Yeah. And, I, and and the key for me, the key is to realize that hi, that Hemingway is essentially writing haiku. He's writing haiku prose at his, at his best, at his best. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, one question that would recur uh, occurred for me several times as I'm reading through the book is, I mean, you've already mentioned that you, you, there were there were a few people like Blake, et cetera, that you couldn't not put in mm-hmm. the book and then your uh, uh, inclination to add people who would not be seen as having something to say about dharma mm-hmm. that's that's understandable but the question that came up for me is how did you i mean uh, you know i could i could read through the list of 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 your authors right mm-hmm. um <clears throat> thoreau emerson um and friends frederick Douglass. <laughs> Dr. Seuss. That was yes. that. That's a, that. That was a fun, um, unexpected one. Mm-hmm. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, John Donne. I mean, John Donne is is an obvious uh, candidate. But um, I'm not going to read through the whole list. But I'm wondering how you ordered the chapters, focusing on each individual writer, in such a way as to do something with the overall arc of the book as you were uh, putting it together? That's a, that's a great question. No one has asked me that. Um, there is an art to it. And I think of it as um, my, my model is uh, uh, the Beatles albums. <laughs> you know, there's which, one, there's... which ones? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, gee, you know, all the, all the great ones. Um, I mean, Revolver, possibly the the best album of all time. Yeah. Um, The, uh, I mean, ultimately you can't, you can't, 
you can't define it. You just, you have to have the ear and go, oh yeah, this start with this. Okay. Right. Uh, and then after that comes this. And then after that comes this, this different flavor. And then, whoops, that's not working. Wait, we have to reshuffle around. Then there were other elements. I mean, Blake just felt like a really great place to start because Blake's appeal is so um, profound. And and yet his language is so simple. Um, You know, tiger, tiger burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? You go, whoa, we, we, we have to look into this. Uh, and the story of his life, as you know, is so, is so wild, including the possibility that he was suffering from ergotoxicosis, uh, the, the result of eating rye infect, infested with purple ergot fungus, uh, which is the precursor of LSD. So the fact that Blake may have been tripping when he wrote this stuff and made those wild uh, pictures, uh, you know, that's pretty fascinating. I did want to ask about that. That is that, is that an interpretation that's been imposed by people looking back to say there must be a reason why he had these uh, visions? <laughs> yeah, you know, we to to, to a certain degree, I mean, to me, theories are fun to play with. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's really my whole book. And I, and I hope I was clear about that in the presentation. I'm just playing here. I'm never saying this is what Dr. Seuss intended. <laughs> right. Well, um, I, actually, I, that, that's an important point because I, I felt like, and what I loved about the book is that that sense of play became clearer and clearer and clearer as, as uh, you proceed through it. I think, you know, at the beginning, it's like, is he really saying that? And then, and then yeah, you get to someone like Dr. Seuss, um, and it, it it becomes clear. I guess what I came to appreciate is this, that what you demonstrate more clearly than anything else to me in the book is that if you look with the eyes of the Dharma, you can see the Dharma everywhere. Yes. And you say you say that at the end, but but you're demonstrating that uh, uh, so well in these and 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 it's not it's not like theorizing. It's like the Dharma has to be everywhere. Right. It has to be everywhere or it's not the Dharma. Right. And so these writers may not have you know, what what happens when they're inspired, what happens when they're at their best. Something's coming through and and you and you look at that and treat it in those terms. You don't have to make every writer a, uh, a, a yogi yeah. for that to be the case. Not a conscious, deliberate yogi. Right. You know, we have a few conscious, deliberate yogis. You know, I've got that quote there from Thoreau where he says, you know, in a, in a, in a letter he wrote to a friend, you know, at certain times, even I, presume to practice the yoga or, or something like that. He was probably the first American to write that. And certainly the first American who could credibly make that claim that he was someone who was deliberately setting up his life as a path of liberation, as a path of enlightenment. You know, that's what he was doing out there in his, in his little shack by the side of Walden Pond. He wasn't just trying to drop out of society uh, out of economic society, he was trying to drop in 
to to the boundlessness. Um, but yeah, if if the Dharma is the Dharma, if the infinite is the infinite, it must be everywhere. Or it ain't the infinite. Um, and when people are inspired, writers, dancers, musicians, accountants, I don't care, right? Software programmers, whatever you're doing, in those moments where things open up and and the old stale ways of seeing that have gotten encrusted with your old concepts. When, when you break out of that into some fresh light, that has to have the flavor of what we call the Dharma, has to have that, that flavor. Um, it, it won't be called that by the person who's living. I mean, you know, if we told Mark Twain, listen, when Huck Finn goes into the, is running away from his horrible, violent, drunken father and escapes by night in a salvage canoe and pushes into the middle of the river, and he's lying on his back, looking at the into the moonlight. Uh, it's he's practicing Namkai Naljor, sky gazing meditation, as as the Tibetans call it. Uh, it you know, Mark Twain would say, well, "You're insane. What are you talking about?" But that's what's something like that is is clearly going on. You you, you, you the. Huck is so, when he's so caught up in the scram, I mean, that's us. We're caught up. That's me in the garage at the age of 11, with my mind just caught up in anxiety and scramble and so forth. And then there's the moment of, ah, and Huck says, the sky is ever so deep when you lay on your back in the moonlight. I never knowed it before. You know, that's clearly a, a, an empowerment, an initiation into, as he says, in the sky, not a cloud in it, right? It's the boundlessness of, of the infinite sky of, that we recognize as, oh, that's the sky-like nature of being itself, of awareness itself. And the thing is, it's the works, whether they're books or movies or, or symphonies, whatever, the works that reflect that the most clearly, I think, are the ones that stick around and become classics because the readers recognize that as much as the writers have the, are instinctively tuned into that in their you know most tuned in moments readers recognize uh, that as oh that strikes something very very deep in me they won't talk about it in dharma terms but it's it's striking the nature of their own being so so you uh, your comments just about just now uh Force me to ask you, um, did you include Immortal Beloved in your book about uh, films? Because there's that scene in that in the biography, this bi- uh, supposed biography of, right. of Beethoven, where he's laying back and looking at the night sky. And I think, it's uh, like, I th- is, is it the, th- the third um, uh, piano concerto? I can't remember. But there's uh, this beautiful adagio. Um, upswelling the attention into the sky. And I'm, um, uh, you know, I hadn't thought of that when I read the book, but your comments now just uh, yeah. link, oh, those, no, no. link those two. Now I, ha- I have to go back to that movie. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, so, so I, I like 
the, what you just said, though, other aspects of what you just said, because you are pointing to something that both readers and writers may access without having any education in ideas about Dharma. Yes. That nevertheless resonate yes. with both. Yes. Yeah. See, I'm always trying to take Dharma out of the Dharma ghetto. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it, to me, it's too important to um, to become the exclusive property of you know weirdos like us who just you know happened to stumble into you know certain wonderful teachers and books and so forth and had the inclination to think about it and talk about it and practice it in in these terms you know ultimately what the dharma points to is so simple and so universal and everyone is hankering for it so that everyone that- is that's you know and again, that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to put Blake in chapter one. I wanted to have right up near the front there, ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done. I mean, that's everybody. Everybody is the sunflower following the sun and it's right. The sun of the infinite, the sun of, of Nirvana and it's in its passage across the sky of our life, just yearning for that. So I'm curious uh, to this point when you were teaching and teaching mm-hmm. a, like a literature of enlightenment, uh, uh, how did that, how did that land with students? I mean, what, because were, he, yeah, cause I'm just interested, you know, because we all come up against, you know, the, the questions and the challenges of like transmitting the Dharma or teaching the Dharma uh, in, in whatever forms it takes. And when, when you can make it accessible to people and connect to something that they know intuitively, right. there, there's something there. So I'm just interested how that, what you found with students who weren't necessarily looking for a, a, an ashram, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, some some of them some of them were, or some, um, you know, and some of them went <clears> on <throat> to, uh, uh, you know, to to go to India and 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 work with the Dalai Lama. I had one of them who did that, one who went to to Japan to you know to sit Zen. Um, uh, some who've continued to be some of my closest. Dharma friends, and some I, I'm quite sure you know took the course, and when it was done, they said, "Okay, well, this was easier than taking Shakespeare." <laughs> right, right, yeah. I listened to you know Slider played his bongos or did whatever the heck he did, you know, fine. But but fine, you know, everyone gets it to the extent to which they're ready and able to get it in that moment. And then, and you never, and I mean, one of the great things about having taught school for that long and now for having so much time passed is, is I hear from some of these people. I mean, I've gotten emails from former students that said, you know, I was in your class and I never took the meditation stuff seriously. And I went and I had this big career on wall street and you know what? My brother committed suicide and and my marriage broke up and I'm feeling completely depressed and I'm going, oh, wait a minute now. What was that stuff you were talking about? 
you know, so a lot of people, as you know, have to hit some kind of bottom mm-hmm. before they're ready to 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 think. Well, maybe this model of of life of accumulating toys, or you know, and and you get happiness that way. Yeah, maybe that doesn't work. Well, it's nice that you had students contacting you. Um, yeah, acknowledging and, acknowledging that they remember yeah, what what yeah. you were trying to offer them, um, and um, it's as good as it when it happened if it had happened immediately after graduation. Surely, yeah, yeah, because yeah. you know when 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 you fall back into into what the Buddhists call not self and what Hindus call self. <laughs> and I, I love that they use this diametrically opposed language to talk about the same thing. Uh, and then we'll argue about whether they're talking about exactly. the same thing. Uh, um, I, I love that. It just dramatizes the inadequacy of language. Um, not because we don't have enough words, but because we're always using you know, too many words. Al- always one word too many when, when we try to talk about that. But when you finally fall back into that, and realize, oh, I've been here all along. There and 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 in that and that's timeless. And that and then it doesn't matter, as you say. Hey, did it? You know, did it? I get it the first day. Did I have to come back thirty years later? And you know, it wasn't just the students in my literature of enlightenment class. All my classes, I found some excuse to infiltrate meditation. I was, I was imagining that. Yeah. You know, I, the American lit, we started with the transcendentalists. You can't understand the transcendentalists without transcending. So, you know, what the, what's Emerson talking about here? I'm a transparent eyeball and, you know, the, the being circle circulates through me. Well, let's see without, what did he mean by the oversoul? Let's see. Okay. Sit comfortably. Close your eyes, blah, blah, blah. And, the, and it was great because once I, I did meditation once in the class, they would come in every day and say, Mr. Slider, Mr. Slider, can we meditate today? And I said, oh, well, let's see, you know, if we get through. <laughs> right. And, and then my, my sophomores, you know, we would get to, uh, well, I always taught Salinger. Usually I taught uh, Salinger's Nine Stories to mm. my beautiful book i usually taught that to my sophomores and you know what is when 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 teddy this 10 year old boy who remembers his previous incarnation as as an almost enlightened yogi in india what's he talking about here well okay sit comfortably close your eyes And, and that also forced me to find language that was as you said earlier accessible um to make because I had to be sure that the parents were going weren't going to come after me for indoctrinating their kids into Buddhism or or Hinduism or something. So I got very good at finding language that's universal and for bringing in the spiritual traditions, but keeping all the balls in the air. So you know, I quote the Buddha, I quote the Gospels. Well, and that's it. Then, and and then uh, partly because I was feeling a little bit. Mm, guilty or unbalanced or something about, you know, working for the rich folks five days a week in in this ritzy prep school. So I started going down, driving down Route 78 to Newark, half an hour down the road to Northern State Prison, which is the the roughest prison in New Jersey. 
and I became the volunteer Buddhist chaplain there mm. and, uh, and, and was sitting with those guys. Um, you know, these kids were on their way to, you know, Dartmouth and Yale and Brown and, and most of these guys in prison, a lot of them had never finished grade school. And so to find language that could work over here and work over here was very, very fortunate situation to be in. That's, uh, uh, you know, the start of your description about needing to find accessible language is, um, was interesting to me because I think many people would be angry or frustrated by the need not to be perceived as um, indoctrinating kids mm-hmm. simply, simply by exposing them to ideas that their parents were unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but what you describe is is that that um, that was an opening for you to yeah. to to, um, to work with language in a in a different way than as you say uh, would be would be done in the Dharma ghetto. Yeah, and and I like to think that if the Buddha were around today, he would do, be doing something similar. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I I think that. He was, he used the language that reached people in his day. You know, shortly before the Buddha died, he said to his, his monks, um, go throughout the land and spread the Dharma in the language of the people. Hmm. All right. Yeah. You know, well, don't don't make don't make the people learn some special language, adopt some special dress or lifestyle or philosophy in order to, you know, finally come face to face with their own nature. Their own nature is the most intimate thing. It's the it's the 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 exact opposite of exotic. Don't make them go through the mm-hmm. exotic to get back to to the intimate. As much as possible. I mean, that's a all. That's a continuing sure. process. It's a continuing quest. I'm always looking for new ways to do it. So I'm curious if you found that that the effort to find language is its own kind of practice and consolidation of your own understanding. Because yes, that's certainly been my experience. That if it it's only when you really take something out of its context and re-express it in a completely different way that you know whether or not there's uh, some juice there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, there's an old saying, if you want to learn something, teach it. Uh, so I found that in my, in my process of teaching, teaching uh, literature to these kids, teaching Dharma and my, you know, my, my teaching meditation, um, and in writing, being there in the, you know, you got stuff. To me, almost the most exciting thing that can ever happen is to go to the keyboard. Okay, now I'm going to sit here or these days often stand here and, and write this chapter. And you think you know what you're going to write. And then something starts to happen. Something starts to happen. It's like playing jazz or something. You get into this flow and whole other stuff comes that, whoa. Where did that come from? Right. And, and wait, is that right? Yeah. That's, I never saw it that way. And you, you go, and you finish the chapter, you go back, you read it later, you go, 
wow, that's pretty good. I wonder if I'll ever be able to do this again. <laughs> well, I, I, so this is the opportunity for me to uh, um, speak to our uh, listeners briefly to say that uh, you embody um, your, or your, your text embodies that kind of um, creativity of language that is um, it, it's, it's appealing and approachable. You know, I mean, that is that is something that you do uh, exceedingly well and and play or play or you play around with uh, figures of speech that are common and recast them slightly to make them uh, an, a um, or to give them the possibility of being an opportunity for rethinking the way we look at things. Well, you guys are good readers. <laughs> No, it's such it's, it's such it's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to, because a lot of the conversations that I have, you know, people tune into the the, the dharma of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But, but but the lang but I, I it, it's so uh, fulfilling to me to, to to talk with people who appreciate what's going on with with the language. Oh, good. Well, and, thank you. And, you know, there's a lot of wonderful. Look. You sit in the presence of a of a of an incredible teacher like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, right? And you go, at least it's my experience. I go, oh, right, there it is. No words necessary, right? Um, I have never been able to get through any of his books. <laughs> I've never been able to get past chapter two of any of his books. The language just it just it just lies on the page in in my experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there's probably people who've read his, his books that that was the total Dharma gate. Great, um, uh, but you know, I'm not the Dalai Lama. I can't walk into the room and have that effect on people. So I need language. <laughs> I got to use what I got. No, I, got yeah. I mean, I, 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 I you you're protesting a little bit there in the sense that I mean, language is is. For, uh, as you've described, an expression of who you are, and and so it makes sense that you're through your language, whether you're giving a lecture to the class or whether it's something that you've written in a book, is there's going to be something there that uh, touches people. I mean, I, I I certainly felt that in reading the book, and it's a I guess it's an interesting question, like. Uh, uh, at what point is just the radiation of presence of someone uh, uh, mm-hmm. with, with nothing else sufficient? It depends. I've been, I've been around some teachers, some in Buddhist traditions, some in other traditions where, you know, it's just they walk into the room and I go, oh, okay, all done. <laughs> I get it. Um, but you know, I used to practice um, the martial art of Aikido, mm-hmm. and and one of the great things I learned from my from my sensei was you use the resources that you have, right? Like I, the resources I did not have. I was not strong. I was not fast. My uh, what they call technical observation, my ability to you know watch a complicated move and then replicate it was terrible, right? Um, I, almost every resource that could make you, you know, eff- effective on the mat uh, practicing Aikido, I didn't have. 
the one thing I had have is very long arms. <laughs> I have exceptionally long arms uh, on, on wide shoulders. And what my teacher pointed out was that's very good for extension, right? And, and, and so he steered me towards using extension as my, my, my resource, my virtue for uh, um, uh, grappling with the other students and making that work for me. So, you know, what I got here is what I got is words. Got it. Well, one of the, th- one of the things that I appreciated the book is uh, there, there are chapters uh, concerning the work of writers I'd never read. Like, mm. and, and the one that totally stands out to me is the, the uh, John Keats chapter, ah. which um, was a complete revelation and, and, uh, like like reading uh, the song lyrics that um, you always wanted to hear but hadn't heard before. Oh, oh, lovely! Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, yeah, Keats, uh, and I would encourage you read read more Keats mm-hmm. because you know I really uh, I I had to keep the book moving. Of course, <laughs> right? And and you know I could have I. You know, I would have had a dandy time just, you know, doing a dozen Keats poems, but uh, to keep things moving, I could only do whatever I've got there, two or three. Yeah. But, but yeah, oh, my God, Keats is, you know, and, and to do everything he did before dying at the age of 25, 26 is just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Just I had no idea about the difficulty of his life. Oh, my God. I mean, it's like <laughs> it was everything that could go wrong went wrong. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Now, my process of uh, in writing this book uh, was, you know, I, I mean, a lot of these ideas had been gestating for literally decades from teaching this stuff. And then, okay, now I'm going to write the Keats chapter or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, generally be about two or three weeks uh, to, to write a chapter uh, initially. And, um, and every morning when I'd go to the keyboard, I'd say, okay, I'm not going to reread what I did before. I'm going to pick up and move ahead. And I would always wind up rereading from the beginning and, and rewriting so that, you know, if I'm doing that every day for three weeks, what is that? So every everything there got rewritten at least 21 times. Um, uh, and, you know, and then I might wind up adding half a page or a page, and that would be the, the day's work. Um, uh, at the end of those couple, two, three weeks, when I had the chapter as perfect as I could make it, I would go out back to the garden here and sit with my wife. Uh, now, my wife, Yafa Larea, is a superb uh, documentary film editor. And um, so she, so it's great because her, you know, if you think kind of a Venn diagram here, her mind mm-hmm. overlaps with mine is same but different. She has a real editor's sense of arc and struct. One of my earlier books uh I was reading through the manuscript to her and uh, and I got to this one sentence in, in the middle of a chapter in the middle of the book. And she, she said, stop, that's the beginning of your book. 
<laughs> right? That was her, just her brilliant sense of structure. And that made the whole book, that reshuffle. So I would read a chapter to her and uh, see, and sometimes, and usually she had notes for me and some of it was just, I could feel how it was landing. This is anyone who's, who's hearing this, that's interested in, in uncle Dean's tips for writers, number one. And I would always tell this to my, my students first day of class, everything you read, you write, you must read out loud, preferably mm-hmm. to another human being. The other human being doesn't necessarily have to say anything, but you've got to, so a whole other thing happens when you read it out loud. So hmm. getting back to Keats. So I would, I read her the Keats chapter and by the end I was weeping. <laughs> this poor guy, you just, you just want to reach back through time and hug him to your breast <laughs> and say, Oh, you deserve so much better. Well, that comes through in the in uh, for this reader at least, mm-hmm. um, in terms of wanting 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 to uh, cry with him and for him, yeah. you know, and appreciate his capacity for expression of um, positivity is not is a is a pale word, yeah. or, uh, but 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 that's the direction. It's it's it, it's, it's, it's the sublime. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's lovely. Just, just mm-hmm. lovely. Yeah. So, um, um, so that's, I, I really appreciate your, your outlining, um, something of your process here. Mm-hmm. This is also, and what you said a moment ago, um, is part of the reason why I asked you about structure and how you, how you settled on the structure in this apparently iterative process. Um, that that yeah. you went through. Usually for me in writing a chapter or writing a book, um, I'm going to say a lot of it is just, you feel, you know, you not only in the sequence of chapters, but the, the sequence of sentences, the sequence of paragraphs, mm-hmm. it, you, you, you feel the flow of it. You feel the music and you just know, okay, this, after this comes this. After this comes this. The, the key thing for me often is just getting the very first thing. Mm-hmm. The very first thing. Like my book, uh, Cinema Nirvana. Mm-hmm. The, the first sentence of the book is, uh, Tibetan temples smell like popcorn. <laughs> right? And I don't know if you have, if, have you been in, in any Tibetan temples? I've never been to Tibet. No. Okay. Well, Tibetan temples, they've got these butter lamps, they're called. Oh, yeah. Of course. It's like, a, it's like a, a, little, a little dish, a little bowl of, of ghee, clarified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have been in temples where, the, where uh, ghee was burning. Right. And, and so that buttery smell, it smells mm-hmm. like popcorn. And then I went on to talk about how, and when you walk through the temples, you, you, the, 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 the floors are sticky under your feet, you know, just like a movie theater. So once I had that, I was off to the races. Yeah. Um, it's a little like, um, one of my, one of my very favorite musicians, Keith Jarrett. Do you know Keith Jarrett? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. The Colin concert. That is my desert island album is the <laughs> home concert. Um, so, and anyone listening to this who hasn't heard Keith Jarrett, especially the Colm concert, K-O-L-M, get it today. It's 
it's so he does this wonderful flowing improvisatory solo piano stuff um and he's he's also kind of famous for just needing to get the first note and there's a story where he his concert was about to begin and he's sitting there on the on the piano bench and sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting and finally someone calls out from the from the audience d sharp <laughs> that's great <laughs> And so he went with D sharp, I take it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> the way I heard the story. Well, that'd be, that would be great if he did, though, no. actually. But, you know, let me tell you something else about Keith Jarrett, since, since you're familiar with this stuff. Have you ever seen him play or seen videos of him playing? I think once I saw yeah. a video. I can't. I, he's my one of my very favorite people to listen to. I can't stand to watch him. Because he plays in this way that's completely slumped over. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like that. And it just hurts my back to watch. And I I don't understand how he can play that way. But, and this is the point here, it works for him. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, have, I have sort of some of the same impression with watching Glenn Gould sometimes in videos. Yeah. He, he just looks really, I don't know, in crunched. Yeah. Yeah. Crunched yeah. into yeah. himself. Yeah. But I guess... Being crunched into yourself can can do wonders. Yeah, and and it's in every field, you know. In 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 most um, most schools of of Dharma and meditation, there's at least some emphasis on sitting sitting up properly. You know, some is very strict, and you've got to sit on a cushion, and it can't be a red cushion; it's got to be a black cushion. And if you you move a muscle, they whack you over the back of the shoulders with a stick. And even the others that are more loosey-goosey, there's some sense of, you know, I mean, when I teach meditation, that stuff is is very loose. It's very natural approach. But my experience, there's something about sitting up, ideally with your back not leaning against something that's 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 good, that's conducive to the of meditation. Um, I never studied with Goenka, but I, I I know people who have, and they say. He sat like Keith Jarrett. <laughs> That's funny. How, how can how can someone so awakened be look so cramped within himself? But I saw him, I, I, I attended a talk of, of Goenka's, and he did, he did look uncomfortable up there on the stage. I gotta say, right? <laughs> and it kind of put me off to be to be quite honest. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Well, as a student, you also have to do what works for you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. So back to the yeah, back to the book. Back to the book. Yeah. Okay. I, I had a the, there's a theme that came up for me. You, you touch on it at the end, but it really it kind of goes to this question of process too, and that's that it's that of gratitude. And the reason the reason I say that is that um, your approach to any of the writers in the book is one of openness and gratitude like your and generosity in, in that you look for the best and you're receiving the best from them. And from that, then it's like, they can speak to you. And I'm just interested. Will, will you marry me? <laughs> oh, He's no, already no. taken. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah. What what we're saying? Yes. Gener- right. Openness. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a delicate dance because, you know, I'm always spinning theories about stuff. Uh, and 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 so on the one hand, you're, you're doing that or I'm doing that. And on the other hand, I, you, you know, you spin this stuff and you don't want to get caught up in this web of concepts that you right. spun. So, so the dance, but, and what it is actually, it's the dance of, of between form and emptiness. You're yeah, generate sure. your, you, the, the openness you're talking about, which, you know, looking at it from different angles, we, we call it openness. We call it receptivity. We call it generosity. Um, uh, we call it non-judgment. That's the element of, of emptiness. That's, that's what Keats called negative capability. Yeah. Right. And his description of negative capability. Come on. He's talking about meditation. He's talking. It's exactly. He, he says the ability to be in the presence of um, what does he say? Uh, uh, un, uncertainties and doubts without any irritable grasping after fact and reason. That's exactly what your teachers tell you to do in meditation. So. There's that's the emptiness aspect, but then out of that emptiness, you start to spin some form. You start to write D sharp, or yeah. you write. You start to write a sentence, <laughs> and the paragraph comes, and then the delicate dance becomes to do that to generate it without being caught in it. So you keep being open, and and it's a paradox. It sounds impossible. It kind of is impossible, but somehow it gets done, and and. And when it really gets done, that that that's art, and that's why it's it's thrilling to see art, what whatever it is. Yeah, uh, and let, let me say, let me say, let me say yeah, before I, before yeah. I forget, I I used to when at the the prep school where I used to teach, um, I used to sit in with the jazz band playing saxophone, not very well, uh, but I got to be dear friends with uh, Sean McAnally, who he's still there. He's the the band director. And he's a real musician, a real jazz musician. And I asked him one day, Sean, okay, tell me about improvisation. What's the secret of improvisation? And he said, you think of something and then don't play that. Mm, Interesting. Right? Yeah. Right? And then I went, wow, that's it. Because I could hear the, the young students, the young jazzers, you can hear them thinking. As they're when they're trying to improvise, you can hear them. Okay, then this leads to that, and what they have to do is let go of that uh, to have the confidence to just leap to go into free fall. Um, um, because whatever, once you think of something, now that's created a structure, and there's this area bounded by the structure, which is finite, and then there's this whole other area outside of the structure. That's that's boundless. So you think of that and then don't do it. Go. Don't go here. Go here. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, uh, I, I study the shakuhachi with a teacher, um, the Japanese oh. bamboo flute. And I always ooh. wanted to play the shakuhachi. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a, yeah. a, little, a little bit of a steep start, but then it's uh, like anything. Hard, hard. hard to make a sound at all. At yeah, hard, hard to make a sound at first, <laughs> but once you uh, uh, get that, then, then yeah. the work begins. Well, well my, my father was an oboe player, so maybe there's some. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So the, but the thing he said that re, I came up for me on this is, is that um, 
of the many, I mean, there's a lifetime of instruction here, but uh, one of the things is like when you're playing, don't listen to what the sound you're making. Right. Because when the mind listens, then it, uh, the, it, it drops, the energy drops. Right. And That's think, like, yeah, that's like the a- certain actors I've heard, I've read about. Eli Wallach was one of them who who never watched any of his films, never watched the dailies, never watched the finished films because because he ne- knew he needed to be in it, not to be standing outside yeah. becoming self conscious of it. Yeah, and then, and then, and just as you're playing, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of offering this as uh, to see if that if there's an equivalence in writing, you know, to. Uh, it's like as you're writing something and you're free, mm-hmm. it, it, it's as you say, it's like a riff. It's like a improvisation and the words right. are coming out. And if you start to think about it, then... then right. Right. And like, yet it, yeah. And yet at the same time, and again, this is the dance, you want to communicate with actual humans who are going to, to read this. You know, I saw a, a statement a few months ago from a writer, I can't remember who the writer was, but someone asked him, well, do you write for yourself or do you write for the reader? And he said, well, if I, if you write for yourself, it, it becomes self-indulgent. If you write for the reader, it becomes pandering. <laughs> so what you have to do is write for the thing that is trying to be born. Hmm. Nice. That's nice. I, I, I like that. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll try that because, uh, you know, yeah. uh, writing and music are similar to me because when, when I write, I'm very, I'm conscious of the sound of the words or, you know, it, and that, that's why I like this, uh, uh, recommendation of reading it, reading it out loud. Out loud. Otherwise it's like mute notes written on the staff. That's not music. It's not music till, <laughs> till it's played. And, 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 and a thing that I realized after a few years of teaching English was uh, I learned to recognize the kids. I mean, anyone, if they, or almost anyone, if they really apply themselves and work, you can learn to be a, a decent writer. But there were some kids that had the capability of becoming good writers. And, and I realized that the difference was they were the ones who had this certain um, some kind of brain circuitry to hear internally the, the, as you say, the music, the cadence, the rhythm of the sentences, the sounds of the sentences um, independent of their meaning. And then how that sound, how that music helps or does not help to convey the meaning and the feeling you want to convey. Yeah. Uh, I, we both, uh, practice in uh, a, a tradition that is similar to the the fourth way work of Gurdjieff. And, oh. and we have friends that uh, spend a lot of time on how to read his book, uh, Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson. I don't know if you've ever picked that up. No, I haven't. Uh, you, you have a treat ahead of you if you, uh, oh, if you want to. Yeah, because it's a, it's like a thousand page koan. And it's uh, it's allegories within allegories within allegories, but the rhythm of the writing is is very much like what we're talking about. There'll be full page sentences, and if you read it out loud, 
with with multiple clauses with multiple clauses, clauses, within clauses, clauses. within clauses within clauses within clauses right, where right, the right. reference may be changing may be pulling out coming in but if you read it and hold your attention and and there's a musicality to it yes. because Gurdjieff's father was uh, 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 this singer in this old, you know, uh, uh, Middle Eastern tradition where they would sing, they would go to competitions and sing these elaborate songs. Mm -hmm. that, like, you know, like, like Homeric poets kind of. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Oh, like, the, the Bardic tradition. Yeah. yeah. And so, wow. so that, that comes across in this and, and it's just, it's, if you can, stay with it it's like suddenly you're tuning into this teaching you don't even know exactly what it's doing to you but but you, you're oh. staying with the rhythm so Ooh, it's salivating yeah yeah so i'd, I'd be I'd, I'd be interested if you uh, uh uh try your hand at that to see uh what comes comes forth but uh you, you, but you know it's fine what you say about his father on 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 one side of my family uh they're musicians going back for generations, going back to to um, you know playing in klezmer troops uh, in in Russia, um, and then going through with you know I've got ancestors who played with John Philip Sousa and Tuscanini and and so forth. So the one side I've got musicians, the other side I've got diamond cutters, <laughs> and, and so perhaps a bit poetically, I like to think that those two strands of DNA, I'm, I'm bringing them together in my writing. Yeah, that's, <laughs> on that's a actually that, on a good day. That's a good, good, good essential description of writing. <laughs> it's certainly a good music aim and diamond list. cutting. <laughs> so, 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 getting back to the book, one of the chapters that I that I really liked was the uh, Herman Melville Moby Dick chapter. Yeah. And by the way. It, the chapter begins with a, a, conf a confession that you make that yes. you that um, that you had as a, as a uh, teacher of American literature, you had sung the praises of Moby Dick. I think is it thirty years? Yes, yes. 30, 30 some years. I'm reading it right here off the page, um, and you had never read it yourself. Right, right. I was faking it. Right, and 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 then you go on to to and, my, and then my karma was my karmic comeuppance was that finally to write this book I had to read Moby Dick. Yeah, right, exactly, and and you 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 read it really interestingly. It's 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 funny because I've read I've read some of the stuff in this you know in the different chapters of this book, and and the difficulties that you describe with the book. I mean, I read it as a, as a teenager, you know, in mm -hmm. high school, and it's it was one of the mostly I didn't I didn't really like reading the books that were assigned to me because I was off reading science fiction and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, but Moby Dick, I, I, I loved Moby Dick. I mean, I have this fond memory uh, of of it and and just the things that um that you describe as maybe problematic for some readers, um, these long riffs on, on, on God knows what aspect yeah. of of whaling, but but far beyond whaling that's present. I was just I was just uh, I just remember gobbling it down, and being fascinated. Well, you were you, you were a, a wired to be a you know a a, a nerd, a future, a, a future reader of Beelzebub's Tales to His Grand. <laughs> That's 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 more flattering than I think the reality actually is. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, 
But anyway, um, uh, you 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 have no problem bringing your critical your uh, um, appropriately critical mind to the analysis of of Moby Dick in this chapter, mm-hmm. and and you know and find things in there that um, that I don't remember finding as a t- as a teenager mm-hmm. so many years ago. But mm-hmm. that's um, beginning that chapter that way and then going through it is actually a very rare kind of thing to see, it seems to me, in literature, where, where someone starts off with, a, with um, highlighting one, a, a weakness of the writer, apparently. It's a small, slight one in this case, but, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I didn't, you know, I was, do, I was fake, faking it for 30 years mm-hmm. about this one particular topic. Mm-hmm. And then um, you 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 use that to open up um, a really long text in a way that will help others um, approach it as well. Because I'm sure you weren't alone yeah. in having that that response. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, it just seems so forbidding. Yeah, it was part of, part of my my challenge in writing this book. By the way, there's a whole backstory that we don't need to hash through now. But my previous five books were with um, a different publisher, mm-hmm. uh, and and I kind of had a relationship there, and I lost my relationship because the personnel changed and so forth. And at the time, I thought it was a disaster, and of course, it turned out to be exactly what I needed. Because I needed to wind up with my new publisher here is New World Library, mm-hmm. and and um, they're actually their headquarters not far from you. Yeah, that's Nevada. right. Yes, right, right. And uh, and wonderful editor there, um, Jason Gardner, mm-hmm. uh, who I had the good fortune to work with, who just really was so expert in recognizing and and encouraging all my best ideas and gently talking me down from my many really bad ideas. Uh, <laughs> But but our but the original contract was to write a a book shorter than this ah. because there's always a worry these days that readers won't have the attention span yeah uh, and 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 I pushed them we we revised the contract a couple of times no I you know what that many thousand words I can't clear my throat in seventy five thousand words. <laughs> And, and then and then I still wound up delivering a book that was longer than it was supposed to be. And um, and and Jason was so lovely when he got the manuscript. He said, OK, well, we'll see. And just with the caveat that, um, you know, we'll probably have to cut, you know, one or two or three chapters. And I'm going through the whole Sophie's choice of, you know, which which chapter. Which beloved chapter am I going to cut? Which, which child do I kill? Which child do I kill? <laughs> and Jason, God bless him, he, he finishes reading the manuscript and he writes me back. He said, there's nothing here I'm even tempted to cut. And That's oh, sweet. Oh, so lovely. So lovely. So, so what we did was he said, okay, we'll make, we're going to make the book, whatever this is, you know, it's a couple of, there's, there's two usual formats for trade paperback books. There's the standard one and the taller, somewhat taller, wider one. So we went with that one so it wouldn't look so thick. Uh, perfect. <laughs> it wouldn't look like a forbidding brick. <laughs> well, I think that's 
I mean, it's smart marketing too, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and 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 your point about, or and I guess the publisher's point about um, a forbidding brick, or people people being worried about that. It is true that that you know, in my lifetime, it seems to me that that print in whatever form, whether it's electronic or um, on paper seems to be shrinking in size in general yeah. compared to what it used to be. And, and it is what it is, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's not much to do about it, yeah. but, um, oh, but that, I, that, go ahead. If I, go if ahead. I may, cause yes, kind of coming off from that, um, uh, I have from time to time, uh, I, I moonlight as an audiobook narrator. So I've narrated my own books and I've narrated other people's books. I've got a, a little sound booth set up in my bedroom closet, which is actually where a, a whole lot of voice work that you hear is done and is in people's closets. Yeah. And um, so uh, I did this. I, I narrated an, an audio version of this book as well, um, which was really fun, really fun. But um Narrating audiobooks really was one of the best things that I've done for my own writing. Hmm. And, and again, coming back to what we said earlier about reading your stuff out loud, that's a key thing. I thought I had that down pretty well. But being in the booth, reading other people's stuff and reading my own stuff, um, and re you know, because there are some sentences that work okay on the page, but are not going to work okay when the reader, when the, the, the listener can't see the page. Mm -hmm. And that has gotten me into the habit over the last 10 years or so of writing um, to be the, I'm essentially writing an audio book mm -hmm. as much as I'm writing a print book. Interesting. And, and it's changed the, the flow of my sentences. And I think only for the better. Very interesting. Thank you for uh, for relating that. That that actually makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> but I'm I'm just imagining uh, what what you just said leads me to imagine uh, being in a being in a closet and having only my own voice uh, to listen to. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, there's the old expression: "He's in love with the sound of his own voice." Yes, of course. You, you have to be. You have to fall in love. <laughs> Non-attached love. <laughs> well, of the two, of the two of us, Stuart Stuart has has been known as the one with the radio voice, and I'm not. So uh, so uh, so a good challenge for me to uh, to, so maybe, to expand my maybe horizons. Maybe I should read there. some of your writing back to you. That's a good idea. There, there That's a go. good idea. Uh, there's a theme I wanted to you know that was coming up to me. In uh, the book, kind of as I look at the arc of the book and the choices of writers, and the fact that we're talking about Western literature and particularly in many cases American literature, and then at the end of the book, you're almost looking for this, this, these keys or these uh, uh, anthems to American identity, mm. and, and so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your vision of America in this book, <clears throat> because mm -hmm. obviously we live in a, a time of great friction and a time of extremes and a time of, 
uh, I don't know, a la- lack of coherency about identity. And so I, I just that, that, that felt like that was writing under the surface on this uh, wave of uh, a Dharma perspective. And so I, I just wanted to ask you if you could speak about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote most of this book during quarantine. And a lot of people said, oh, great, quarantine, I'll write my book. Uh, but, but I actually did it. Um, and, uh, and I wrote this book through the, uh, the whole election of 2020 and all the insane (laughs) events that happened around that. Um, and to a certain degree, it, it did inform the book. And in particular, that, that last chapter on, on, national anthems and also the Moby Dick, the Moby Dick chapter. Um, um, you know, when there, there's actually, there's actually some stuff I took out under, under J- Jason's wise guidance um, uh, where, you know, cause I was so fucking angry. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, and I couldn't help noticing that when when Ahab whips the crew into this frenzy, chanting "Death to Moby Dick, Death to Moby Dick," you know, all I could hear was "Lock her up, lock her up, yeah. build that wall, stop the steel." Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, and it's the same. It's the same kind of madness. Uh, and, and Jason, I think, wisely steered me, okay, let's, he, he said, not so much because it's too political, but it'll be too dated. And, and, and so what I did was I widened it because it really applies to, you, you know, not only our own, you know, would be Mussolini, but very sadly, this, this whole generation of Mussolinis that are arising throughout the world. But, but I, I, I hope I left enough in there to make it clear that that's the same madness that, you know, Ahab is on this journey. There is this thing that I, the basic principle of it, which is, which, which is there in the chapter where I say, you know, tra- transgression is, is clumsy transcendence. You know, that, and I say something along the lines of, it's hard work being good boys and girls. Right. Yes. Obeying the laws of the of the land, the rules of the road, the rules of ethics, gravity, <laughs> cause and effect, all that, you know, it's a lot of work. And so when someone comes along that says, yeehaw, let's break all the furniture. Let's break all the rules. And look, I'm breaking everything and getting away with it. I'm breaking logic. Anything that happens that comes along, I don't look. I don't like it. I just say fake news and it goes away. That's thrilling. We all want to be able to do that in our lives. And so, you know, that makes the appeal understandable. But ultimately, there has to be some reckoning. Ultimately, there's some coming head first against the laws of physics. And, you know, the ship sinks. Everyone goes down in the ship. Well, I, I, I'll just comment that that uh, I actually thought what's in the book is quite 
it's quite clear what you're just what you've just articulated in, in greater detail. If the shoe fits, yeah. <laughs> but but um, but but like I think the, the, there's one mention of MAGA in that final chapter, um, just a single one. Oh, oh, yeah. But I did it about being even handed. That, that, That's that, yeah. that we're trying to extend our compassion to everyone or we go, oh, this one is too woke or too MAGA. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. But, so, right. Fair and balanced. Right. <laughs> well, I, I didn't think of it that way, but but um, or at least quite with that context in mind. But in any event, um, uh, it, it would be I could see the temptation being present mm -hmm. to 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 step out of the dharma and step into more of the picking and choosing mind that uh, the third zen patriarch um, mm -hmm. tells us not to suggests we don't do right, right. so so yeah. so um so i thought it was I, i'll just say um God bless your editor and you for <laughs> for 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 doing it in a way that I don't think has to be read would have to be read by anyone with their preconceptions as as being oh this book is not me or this book is not speaking yeah. to me yeah so that's um that's and I'm sure that was hard it it yeah it is it's challenging you know i wrote a book that was published in 2018 called fear less mm -hmm. uh and the the subtitle is uh something like living beyond fear anxiety anger and addiction okay um and i was in the middle of writing that book when the election of 2016 happened Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, there's this great story. I'm, I'm, I'm going back when I'm telling a story about a story, but this will, this will all. It's like Gurdjieff, like Gurdjieff's already. Like Gurdjieff, right. <laughs> okay. There's a story you may be familiar with. Uh, when, when Ram Dass in 19, uh, it was around 93 or 94, I think. 94, nine, 95, I think. Ram Dass, uh, had, a, had a contract. He was writing a book uh, about conscious aging. And he submitted his manuscript to the editor and it came back from the editor with the note, something along the lines of, well, you know, this is all very lovely and so forth, but it's, it's, it seems a bit abstract. I'm not getting somehow the real, you know, angst mm -hmm. of the firsthand personal angst of having the body age and break down and, and so forth. And so Ramdas reads that note that night he goes to bed and he's lying in bed thinking, how can I rewrite the book so that it really brings it out in a firsthand way? And the phone rings. He tries, goes to get out of bed and answer the phone and he falls on the floor because he's had his stroke. Right. Yeah. I could see where you're going with this. Right. And I go, and and aha, that was what he needed to, to to write the book in that way. So be careful what you yeah, exactly. Um, so so in my case, I was writing about fear, anxiety, anger, addiction. Now, thank God, I don't have a lot of those things in my life. Um, anger is the one I'm I'm most prone to of of, of those. Um, but uh, 
the election of 2016 happened. The next day, I'm, t- I'm taking a long walk down Lincoln Boulevard here in, in Santa Monica, and I realize I'm I'm seething with fear, anxiety, anger. I didn't go to addiction, um, but but with those. And 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 I came home and I wrote about my experience of walking down Lincoln Boulevard on the day after that election. Um, and as with everything that I write, I, I read it to my wife. And before I read it to her, I said, I've written this thing and I feel I can't put it in the book, but I can't not put it in the book. And 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 finally was decided to include it in the book. And it's it's titled No. When was the that election? November 8th, I think. So it's titled November 9th, 2016. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like a journal entry of just what that felt like. Because I because and I, I realized that thousands, millions of people were feeling what I was feeling. And I had to express that and acknowledge that and then connect it with the Dharma. Okay, where how do we confront this? And not, as you say, step out of the Dharma. How do we make this a way to, okay, here, you know, Dharma is always dealing with reality. It's not dealing with some, you know, bullshit Disney version. It's right. And so how do we use this to step up through, through the Dharma? And um, uh, I think I would do it again, but I must say there were people that, you know, read, I put that near the end of the book and there were people I know that because they wrote Amazon reviews saying, yeah, everything was going along fine. And then this guy brings his politics in and I went, sorry, not for me. So yeah. What can you do? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, what you, what, what, what you can do is do what you did with this book. Yeah. here. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I think the other thing that I was thinking of, uh, and this is where part of the uh, sense of generosity and maybe even the theme of respect comes in at the that you raise at the very end is um, you take on writers and you include writers who in you know some of the modern uh, in, uh, uh, viewing are being rejected now because they, they they don't live up to our ideas of what someone in the, the modern world should be mm-hmm. and you don't do any of that. Uh, uh, you you have a sense of context for these people, and you also have this understanding that no one no one is perfect, and and just like finding the Dharma suddenly unexpectedly arising in a piece of literature, uh, it may go away again for a hundred pages and come back up, and so no no one's life is going to be perfect either, and right, and that. That openness, it really is something that is foundational to me about what, if I think about uh, American spirit uh, and what yes. the, this this odd collection of people has accomplished is there is an openness or the capacity for openness to difference that's unparalleled in uh, most other cultures in the world. and. Yeah. It's not a, it's not an accident that this is the country where jazz emerged, because, again, getting back to my wonderful friend and, and, and teacher, Sean McAnally, the, the band director at the Pingree School, uh, whenever he talks to his his students about improvisation, he says, it's just having a conversation. 
He says, when you converse, when you talk, you don't think, what am I going to say next? What's the subject? What's the verb? What's the object? You get engaged and, and, and allow it to flow out of you. But in a conversation, you have to engage with other people who are coming from other places. Right. So, so it's not a coincidence that the, the country where people, you know, you had some musicologists will tell you that the real birth of jazz as we know it came when, um, as a result of the, 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 the closing of the Storyville Red Light District in, in, in New Orleans, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong was forced to migrate north, found himself in Chicago, and at night, standing under the window of the opera house, hearing arias and realizing, okay, this is how we break out of, you know, the earlier, the Dixieland jazz, where it's, okay, the clarinet and the banjo and the, the whatever's the other one, um, uh, you know, just kind of weaving around. Or oh, this idea of the stepping to the front of the stage and playing the solo. Right. That starts with Louis Armstrong listening hmm. to opera. So here we've got, uh, uh, you know, we, we have the roots, uh, uh, the black roots of music. We have European, you know, how many of the jazz standards, you know, we, we often uh, it's, you know, uh, posited that, uh, okay, jazz is black people's music and white people may not have a role in it, but how many of the great jazz standards were written by Italian composers or Jewish composers, you know? So yeah, it's, 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 it's the United States of America, as Barack Obama said. Yeah. And, and then it's such a fitting, um, uh, uh, coda to introduce Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Uh, Won't you be my neighbor? And, and, Again, I, 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 it, it's, it's funny, I, I was reflecting on that because, you know, what, what's so missing right now in the modern um, political scene is the willingness to have conversation. Yeah. And, and what that is, I mean, even that openness, though, is, is an expression of the Dharma because, yeah. because there's a knowing that no one representation is ultimate. Yes. And yeah. if, if we remember that, then it's possible to have a conversation and to find unity in, in some core, some deeper values than, than what, than what, uh, than, than agreement about ideas. Yes. Yes. I think it was the Zen master Sung San who, you know, his kind of motto was only don't know. Yeah. Only don't know. You know, can we pause for a second? I've got to do something about um, not running out of uh, battery here. Yeah, hold on. (laughs) So uh, one of the chapters that I greatly appreciated reading was uh, the Gerard Manley Hopkins chapter. Yes. And um, and and I have a particular a personal reason to appreciate it um, because you do such a skillful job of um, taking taking the work apart in a way such that I could actually understand it. When I, when I first read it, read just his just his poetry, it's like, oh my God, what planet is this coming from? 
Yes. It's, it's not easy because there are allusions to things that, that I just had no, like, like the thing about the gold, the, 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 little lightning, lightning off the, off the gold foil being crinkled. Um, and then, you brought in the flame out like shining from shook foil. Yes. And I'm like that. It, it, it seemed like a foreign language to me uh, when I read it, but um, a skillful um, interpretation can elucidate these things. And, and that's what you, that's what you offer. But it was also um, interesting to me because um, unlike Hopkins, I grew up with Catholicism and, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he did not, he conscious, consciously, uh, decided to, um, convert to Catholicism right. and, 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 and so he was always this conundrum for me, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and was not in his time. Well, he wasn't in his time read because no one, no one was going to be reading that, that material. Number one, no one, was, no one was going to publish it. Right, right, and even even his, I guess, friend uh, uh, or interlocutor, the uh, future poet laureate of of England, um, yeah, wasn't what wasn't wasn't about to put it out there until much 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 later. Yeah. So so it's really interesting to me, and this is, this of course is true for Dickinson as well. It's like so that here's. Here are work and Moby Dick, for that matter, as, yes. as well. We have these works that only many decades later find an audience for whatever for, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And now they are um, they are widely admired, even uh, at the pinnacle of the canon in the mm-hmm. case of Moby, Moby Dick, for example. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, how do you? How do you situate that? Um, it's like uh, a lot of people, Dharma or no Dharma, consideration in mind, write in order to be heard. Um, Dickinson is a particularly um, mm-hmm. apposite example here. Mm-hmm. But um, um, what if and what does it mean or have you reflected on this this feature of literature that can be so profound to later generations and absent when the writing is done. Yeah. Again, it just it just depends on the case, on the individual, on the situation. You know, um, Shakespeare was he was all about as they say in the theater, putting asses in seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he became a very rich man by, by doing it. Uh, he, was, he was wildly successful, pop- popularly acclaimed among all classes of society in his time, and has it's remained that way unbroken ever since. But that's very rare. Yeah. Right? Uh, um, it, it, you know, very often... If you're doing something that is is really out there, really fresh, really original, that really breaks out of the forms of of what's been done before, um, 
uh, you may have trouble getting people to hear it. They, it may take a generation or two for people to be ready to hear. And there's probably stuff as brilliant as Hopkins that, that we haven't heard yet, maybe that we never will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in, in the case of, of um, Moby Dick, uh, as you know, in, in the chapter, I kind of theorized that there were a few things that had to happen before people were ready to read Moby Dick. One was um, uh, the First World War had to happen so that people were ready to let go of their old conventional structures and hierarchies of thinking how things are ordered and to be ready for some bigger, more cosmic order. Uh, The second was um, James Joyce had to publish Ulysses, Hmm. which was the next huge fractal book about everything. And the third was the emergence of jazz in the 1920s. And and it was in fact, right on the, the, the heels of those three things happening that Moby Dick started to be recognized. Yeah, I think, I just think that's really interesting. And, and, um, and I wonder, (laughs) or I guess it's a feature of Dharma that, um, that sometimes gratification or absence of gratification, gratification is delayed or there's absence of gratification for the person expressing how they need to express, presumably, or yeah, what they need know, to express. You know, I feel like if, you know, if there's, if everyone's telling you, oh man, what you're doing is great. And we just can't, you know, and you're, you're selling out the, the concert halls, maybe you better stop and ask what you're doing wrong. <laughs> There we go. That's the response I was looking for. (laughs) Because the Dharma isn't always popular like that, is it? Well, no, it's, 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 look, you're, what are we asking people to do in the Dharma? We're asking, we're, we're, we are proposing the most subversive, thing that can be proposed, which is not just uh, your, you know, your, 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 your politics are, are wrong or your, your, your taste in, in, in lunch meat is wrong. You, who, your concept of what you think you are is wrong. Mm-hmm. You think you're a person. You think you're, you think you're, 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 you're this thing. It's got, you've been tagged with a name. You, 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 this, this, this individual ego that's been put in a bag of skin. You're tagged and bagged. You know who you are. Uh, and you'll do almost anything to not have that challenged. You know, one of my favorite things. I haven't had a chance to do it in a while, but would be when I was doing more before quarantine, doing a lot more uh, traveling and going to to new cities to teach workshops and to be on my own walking through a strange city where I didn't know anyone. And, and I, and, and even to be on the airplane where I didn't know anyone. And, you know, so many people, when they find themselves on the airplane and they're, they're sitting next to a stranger, what do they do? They start trotting out their story. Well, hi, 
I'm from Phoenix. I have three kids. I'm an insurance broker. But, you know, it's like, okay, right. This, this being out here in free fall with no story is intolerable. I've got to trot out my story and reassure myself that the story still works. Now, what happens in meditation uh, on, a, on a good day is all the handholds fall away. All the story falls away. Um, uh, you're, you're, you're out there just being, being, not being a person, not being male or female or, or old or young. You're just being, being. And what that feels like, uh, to the uninitiated is I'm, I must be dying. You know, famously, this is what is ha- sometimes happened to people on, on psychedelics when you would get that thing very suddenly and very dramatically and often without any uh, preparation, you you feel the whole, your old sense of, of the self, the ego melting away and people would panic, hence the quote unquote bad trips. Uh, well, that thing is going to happen on the day that we die. And I, you know, I always think that, you know, you, you want to do the fire drill before the fire. <laughs> <laughs> you want you want there's, there's a, a good metaphor <laughs> yeah a you want to you want because this thing's you know you're familiar right with the fire sermon it's all fire this thing's on fire it's everything's on fire um and uh that moment is going to happen and you know i really think of that as the the final exam and as far as i can tell i mean who the hell knows but as far as i can tell you know the the deal on that final exam is to be able to go, oh, yeah, it's all falling away. Thank you. <laughs> what, what, what good luck. And, and, and to, to me, that's really kind of the essence of the meditation experience is that when it, you really allow everything to fall away, it's, as, as my old teacher Maharishi once said, it's just nothing but there's something very good about it. <laughs> like the uh, bad news is you're in free fall. The good news is there's no bottom. <laughs> right, right. I always say, you know, the, the, first, the first syllable of free fall is free. Yeah. So, so um, how, has the, um, how has the writing this book changed your life, if at all? Oof. That's a good one. Oof. Well, for years, I had this persistent thought. For years before writing this book, I had this persistent thought, which was, um, I knew that I needed to write my book on Dharma and literature. And, and, you know, and I've written other books and they're all, you know, I've loved doing it. And hopefully I have something worthwhile to say in those, but this is the only book, the only thing in my life that I've had, I had this persistent thought. If someday I'm on my deathbed and I haven't done that, I'm going to be really pissed at myself. I get it. Yeah. And, and, and really everything else, you know, thank God, you know, I've had two wonderful marriages, raised two wonderful children. I've got these, these five 
terrific, hilarious grandbabies now. And, you know, I, I just feel completely fulfilled. But this was the one thing that I was kind of going to be stuck in my craw. And, and now it's, it's done. So it's, I'm kind of I'm in a place now. Where I'm kind of looking around going, well, now what? Hmm. What's freedom? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do after you've done the, the last thing you had to do? Got it. Yeah, but, you know, may that be our worst problem. Well, that does, uh, as, as we uh, draw uh, to the closing minutes here, uh, raise the question of, yeah, what is what is next? Or uh, maybe a, a precursor to that question is, is there anyone you left out of this book that you really want to give voice to? Oh yes, uh, yeah. There, there of other other writers, sure. Um, um, I mean, some I were I, some that I would love to dig into, but I, I, I frankly was at the same time kind of grateful that the that the 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 the, the, the strictures of space uh, kept me from you know taking on Joyce. Taking yeah. on Wakov because that's like climbing Everest. I, I just, you know, I mean, one thing I, I have to mention: I didn't go to graduate school, right? And and uh, you know, there's this whole kind of tools that that people develop uh, uh, in cr- critical writing of the, the kind of really sophisticated stuff. I don't do that here, um, and I th- I feel. I hope that I make that work for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, there are other people who are, they're the graduate school teachers. God bless. We need them. I'm a high school teacher. You know, I like to think I'm a high school teacher that brings a different light in that, that isn't usually brought in, but you know, I'm a, I'm a generalist. Uh, I, I don't have the, the tools to climb Mount James Joyce. Uh, uh, and 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 reveal the Dharma of Ulysses or the Dharma of Finnegan's Wake, um, but I would love it if someone else did. Yeah. Well, I, I I think I think you sell yourself a little short here. Now I I have a graduate degree, although not in literature, uh, and and in archaeology, anthropology slash archaeology, but. Um, the best writing um, about this topic. There's actually a, a, a new book out by, unfortunately, recently deceased David Graeber and David Wengro um, about um, reconceptualizing our whole understanding of our uh, of the history of the species from deep prehistory to the modern day. And it is a book for a general reader. Mm-hmm. They deliberately make it a book for a general reader. Mm-hmm. That doesn't reduce sophisticate the sophistication of the book mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And so the the um, the specialist has his, has her or his role, absolutely right. for sure. Right. And um, but Dharma specialists have a different role than Dharma teachers or, or those who want to um, right. open the Dharma gate to people who haven't yeah. walked up to it before. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's a matter of, of sussing out 
what are your, you know, do you have the long arms or do you have the what's your particular resource? I was always going to be too lazy for graduate school. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, just um, I'll make this story quick because I know we have to wrap it up. I love you guys. I could talk with you guys all day. Can we <laughs> stop? Um, <laughs> um, Thank you. But but when when I started teaching at the Pingree School, I started in the middle of the year. Uh, they I, I had never taught in the classroom before. Um, I had a friend on the inside who thought I would make a good classroom teacher. Somehow he knew that before I did. Um, uh, so they had a new teacher who, who worked from September until the Christmas break and wrote a letter said, I'm not coming back. So they were interviewing people. Everyone else had better qualifications than I did. They had classroom experience. They had PhDs, but my friend wanted me there. So he went around quietly sabotaging everyone else's application and, and I got the job, but this meant that I was thrown into teaching I did not have the summer before to prepare as you usually do. I it would just, I was just trying to keep up. What's next. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to start teaching the Canterbury tales. I've never read Chaucer. <laughs> that, that was a hole in my, in my reading. I had no idea what Chaucer was about. So I run upstairs to the library, to the stacks, pull out four or five or six books on Chaucer history, Chaucer criticism leaf through. And somehow I found that I could, okay, pick up a, get an idea here, get an idea there, get in front of the class, start talking and, and some chemistry would happen. Some magic would happen and, uh, and it would work. Uh, some, some kind of little tap dance would unfold. And I go, well, I, I, I haven't been busted yet. <laughs> so, um, so in a way I'm kind of still doing the same thing. I think we're all doing that thing, actually. Yes. Uh, yes. So um, we're all faking uh, it. Yeah. There are no grown-ups. <laughs> no one's got it together. We're all bozos on this bus, right? Indeed, we are. <laughs> well, perhaps that's a uh, fitting, a fitting, a fitting place, uh, place to, to conclude. A, I mean, uh, if you do write another book, we want to know about it so we can continue our conversation. Yeah. And Absolutely. and uh, it's been a, a real pleasure both to read the book, uh, have the occasion, and and this conversation. Yeah, a pleasure. So thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positivist. Same, same. Thank you so much. It's been great. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host Stuart Goodnick. This week in the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Dean Slider, author of The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature published this year by New World Library. In this book, Dean unpacks the drama of more than 20 major writers, from William Blake to Dr. Seuss, inspiring readers to deepen their own spiritual life and see literature in a fresh new way, as a path of awakening. Dean Slider has led meditation workshops and retreats throughout the U.S. since 1970 at venues ranging from Ivy League colleges to maximum security prisons. For 33 years, he taught English and literature of enlightenment at the Pingree School. He lives in Santa Monica, California, where he sings with a threshold choir, plays old songs on his ukulele, and happily zips about on his Vespa. 
Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.